Hi there, I'm Jill Jacobson. You may remember me as Vanessa from the episode The Royale on Next Generation and Shalon Arroya from Deep Space Nine episode Broken Link. And you're listening to Trek Untold. Hello and welcome to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I am your host, Matthew Kaplowitz, and this week I'm still not back in my uniform, I'm still recovering from NYCC among some other things, but again, I want to make sure we don't miss another week of the show, so here we are. And the nice thing about doing it this way too is that I also get to talk about current events, because quite honestly, the way I normally record these episodes is I do them in big batches. So I might record an intro that won't even air for a few weeks, let alone sometimes a few months. But since we're recording it this way, I can tell you guys some really cool stuff, which is that I just finished watching Lower Deck Season 2 last week, and I was super into it. I've been really enjoying Lower Decks. I liked Season 1 a lot. Season 2, I think, is even better. And that finale has me super hyped for what they're going to do in Season 3. It's hard not to avoid spoilers with Star Trek stuff, so I am going to be a little bit careful about things that we can or can't say for folks who might be living internationally who haven't been able to see it yet, or for folks who just don't have Paramount+, Plus or for whatever reason, haven't seen it. So... Not going to say too much about it other than I've been really enjoying it, really liking it. And I do want to say that coming up on Monday, we're going to have a special bonus mini-sode of Trek Untold with a certain person who did show up in that Season 2 Lower Decks finale. I'm not going to say who it is, but if you watch the episode, you'll know who I'm talking about. So stay tuned on Monday for that. And right now, just a little bit of quick housekeeping also. I wanted to remind everybody that's listening or watching this today that we have a contest going on. And that contest is thanks to the fine folks over at Hero Collector. If you guys listened to last week's show, you know we interviewed a few different authors, and one of them was Ian Spelling, who is the author of Hero Collector's new Star Trek original series, A Celebration Book, which is this amazing, big, thick, hardcover book full of interviews with the actors from the original series. There's some new stuff in there, as well as a lot of behind-the-scenes stories from the show and plenty of interviews with folks who you might not be too familiar with, but were pretty critical in Star Trek becoming a success. It's a really cool book, and Ian was super awesome enough to do this contest with us. And what's going on here, folks, is you've got a chance to win that really amazing hardcover book. So consider this your chance to get a copy of this book completely for free. But in order to do that, you've got to do something for me. So the way you can get entered to win a copy of this book is what we're looking for right now is I need reviews and ratings on iTunes. So if you leave a five-star rating and a positive review over on iTunes, take a screenshot of it and send it to me on social media, whether it be at Trek Untold on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, you do that and you're in the running now to win this book. The contest is going to end next Thursday, so the next episode of Trek Untold is when this is going to finally wrap up. And I'm going to use a random generator of some kind to choose a winner from amongst all those reviews, which is why it's also very important for you to make sure you hit me up on social media so I know it is your review and I know how to contact you after to get your information to Hero Collector. So that's all it takes to get a chance to win this really, really amazing book from Hero Collector. And by the way, if you're not already following them as well on social media, make sure you do that and check out all the cool stuff that they've got, whether it be their books or their amazing diecast models. Hero Collector has something for everybody. And that's not just Star Trek stuff. We're talking Doctor Who, Ghostbusters, WWE, Rick and Morty, Marvel, DC, a lot of stuff out there. So go ahead, take a look. But now let's talk about this week's guest, and this week we are chatting with Jill Jacobson, who is a veteran actress who you may remember from her two roles in the Star Trek universe. 
She first appeared in the Next Generation Season 2 episode of The Royale, playing the ditzy Vanessa who was trying to keep her shirt on at that interesting casino. Jill returned for the Season 4 finale of Deep Space Nine titled Broken Link as of Roya, a Bajoran who owned the Celestial Cafe on the Promenade and who was desperately trying to get a date with Odo. Beyond Trek, you may have seen her from her recurring roles in Falcon Crest as Aaron Jones, LaRue Wilson in The New Gidget Show, Chantal in Newhart, Nurse Nancy from Days of Our Lives, and other guest spots in Quantum Leap, Who's the Boss, Sledgehammer, Harper Valley PTA, Ghost Whisperer, and a whole lot more. And for you cult classic movie fans out there, you also might know Jill Jacobson as the infamous Nurse Sherry from the Al Adamson movie by the same name. And you better believe we are going to talk about that movie. Jill has one of the best audition stories I've ever heard on this show about how she got her TNG role and has a surprising connection to Jonathan Frakes that I didn't know about and I can't wait for you to learn about this too. Jill hasn't done a ton of interviews either, but she has done a lot of performing in television, film, and on stage over the years and has learned a lot. So today, she's going to share her stories and her life experiences with us in this very enlightening conversation with a performer who has certainly earned her time in the spotlight. But before we begin this week's episode, I want to remind you about the different ways that you can support Trek Untold. If you're in a position to help us financially, we have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash trekuntold, where you can support us for as little as $2 a month. Joining at higher levels allows you to have early access to the latest episodes, knowing in advance who our guests will be before anybody else finds out, or even the chance to submit questions to some of those future guests, and maybe your question might be heard on that episode. Shout out to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions, who create 3D printed toys and prop replicas inspired by Star Trek. Their items come in all shapes and all sizes and are always amazing, but you're going to hear a little bit more about them later on in the show. But most importantly, I need you to leave a review and rating on iTunes or wherever you're listening to Trek Untold. Five-star ratings and positive reviews help this show pop up when new listeners search for Star Trek podcasts and make sure that they know they're listening to something that is worth their time. If you're watching this episode in video format on YouTube, please leave a thumbs up, share the video, and of course, comment there as well. Interacting on all these platforms is a guaranteed way to spread the word about Trek Untold. So if you've been a fan of this show, please do take action in whatever way you can and help make sure that Trek Untold can reach more listeners just like you who are going to love this type of content. And don't forget to follow us on our social media pages, which includes Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. All you need to do is type in at Trek Untold on any of those platforms, search for us that way, and you will find us just like that. You can also watch the video version of this episode on our YouTube channel, which you can subscribe to at youtube.com slash nerdnews today. The video versions are released on Sundays, so the audio version will always come first, but if you prefer watching it, that's the way to do it. We also do a lot of other Trek-related content there, including toy and book reviews and plenty of other stuff, so you might want to take a look too, just so you can indulge and get yourself a new daily dose of Trek nerddom, however way you like to get it. Now, without further ado, let's bring in this week's guest and get this episode started. Computer, beam in this week's guest. And welcome back to Trek Untold. And now joining us on the other side of the screen, we've got a performer who you guys have seen in many, many things. Today you get to learn her story. We've got Jill Jacobson with us. Jill, how are you today? I'm great. I'm very happy to be here on Trek Untold. (laughs) Yes, thank you so much for being here. It's great to finally meet you Zoom face-to-face. We got to talk a little bit off camera beforehand. It was really nice chatting with you. I know you got a lot of great stories, so I'm very excited to share them with my audience because uh, you're you're kind of a mystery on on the internet. I know, aren't I? Yeah. I know. That's why I was approached to do my memoirs, and so I have a ghostwriter working on that with me because, you know, the business will never be the same. So what my experiences were, were awesome. 
I mean, it was great. I am so grateful that I've had these experiences and I was able to work every day. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, your record is very, very impressive and we definitely have a lot of things to talk about. So let's jump right on in here, though. I want to ask you uh, the first question I like to ask all my guests in the show. And that's, what is your earliest memory of Star Trek? Well, obviously, the William Shatner Star Trek. Um, you know, the music, the the visuals, the, you know, they were somewhat stiff, right? The stiffness. I mean, those are things I noted as a little girl was, um, you know, the stiffness of the characters. Um, it was always a, there was a sexuality always involved. The love, the mist, the unrequited part of the sexuality, right? Am I, am I, am I correct? Um, I felt like uh, they were always a miss because that woman would never be carried over to the next episode. But yet we were enthralled with the story. Yeah, something about that. And usually it was Kirk in most cases, but a lot of times you had Chekhov getting a lady or very rarely Spock would get one once or twice, like in the Cloud Minders. But uh, yeah, right. it, was, it was the 60s. I and mean, there was like a lot of that romance built into every plot. Well, wasn't the 60s kind of a runover from the 50s and it never quite caught up until late 60s and everything was still very like, uh, you know, we can't show our sexuality. But yeah, it just always seemed like it was a miss. Those I'm drawn to romance. So I'm drawn to the, you know, less of the, I don't know, the science fiction and more of the romance. And yet I've done my share of science fiction. That's interesting because I don't think I've ever heard anybody like really look at Star Trek in that way before. So that's a pretty unique way weird. to view Isn't it. Isn't it weird? Yeah. Yeah. So can you tell us, uh, you know, let's, let's go back in time now. Can you tell us where you were born, who your parents were, what they did, and what little Jill wanted to be when she grew up? I was born in Beaumont, Texas. Ever heard of that? I've heard of I've heard of Texas. Oh, Beaumont, I don't think terrible. I know. It's terrible. It's terrible. Um, it was a, not a good place to grow up. I was a little Jewish girl, like one of the few. Um, and um, I guess I always dreamed of getting out of there. Because... Um, even on the playground, like when I was in fourth grade, they used to push me against the fence and say, you killed Jesus, you killed Jesus. Or I was 10 years old. And they, and I said, I did, I, I did that. And um, I was a skinny little girl with kinky curly hair. And I just thought, wow, how rude, you know, that everybody was. And um, so I went into my own little world you know, I guess my own little imaginary world, which is, I guess, where actors come from. And um, I, I fell in love with movies. Deeply, deeply in love with movies. And I would transport myself into these films. And um, I didn't know what was going on. I just knew that I liked being in the movies. And I loved... I loved it. I loved it. And um, my dad was a doctor. And my mother was a doctor's wife. My mom was a concert violinist and a beauty queen when she was younger and gave it all up to marry my father. And um, I had an older sister, 12 years older. And um, it wasn't happy. 
So I guess that's why I found solace and happiness in film. And um, so as I, as I got older, I started um, performing like in the living room and I would lock people in and just sing and dance with them. Not that I was any good at it, but I would just always want to perform for people. And then um, as I grew older, I thought, wow, what do I want to do? And then being a film major sounded awesome. So, and I found my niche. I went to UT in Austin, University of Texas at Austin. And I found my niche in the film department with all the, you know, the, the kind of freaks and geeks. AV nerds like me. Oh, that's <laughs> who I am. That's who I am. And maybe that's why we're here together today is I found my niche and I was completely happy and I was free. And it was the first time I was away from home. And um, my father died when I was 11. So I went through, you know, early, early heartache. Um, and so it was the first time I was away from home. And here I was with my people. And, um, you know, I studied film. And then one thing led to another. And uh, I got to act in the department, in the film department. And I, all of a sudden I became the regular. I was... They asked me to star in all the films that were being done in the film department. And so the drama department would come over and be my co-stars and we would videotape everything. And I would see three movies a day, write critiques, get stoned, write millions of critiques and perform. That was my life in college. So needless to say, I was very happy. <laughs> and then, um, I thought, well, the next step is to um, send an audition tape to L.A. because I wanted to do movies. I didn't I wasn't really wanting to do theater, even though I've done theater and I love doing theater. So I sent an audition tape to an acting coach in Los Angeles and um, I got accepted. And I thought, oh, wow, I got accepted. They accept anybody. <laughs> anybody can get an acting coach here. and. Um, I got accepted and a couple people at UT said, call this actor, call these actors from Texas, older actors, and maybe they can help you out. So I called two older actors and they were grisly kind of, you know, cigarettes dangling from their mouths. And they decided they wanted to help me out. So they would introduce me to John Broderick from Bad Georgia Road. And they introduced me to um, Al Adamson, Nurse Sherry. Yeah, let's actually start with Bad Georgia Road since that was your f film debut, right? And that one's got a pretty great sci-fi connection and Star Trek connection because you've got yes. Henry Lockwood in that film. And yes. of course, he was in 2001 A Space Odyssey most famously, but he was also Gary Mitchell in Star Trek. And I guess you can call it the second pilot for the series. Yes. We're known yes. as now before, yeah. Yes. So I'd love to hear about I working on that film with Gary. I of him as in Star Trek. Yes. Gary was, you know, they, okay. So John Broderick was the director of Bad Georgia Road, the sweetest and the kindest man ever. And he took me under his wing. I went in, I, I had one line and um, I read for him 
he said, okay, you're going to go to work tomorrow. He didn't tell me what I was doing, but he said, okay, you go to work tomorrow. And all of a sudden, I the next day, I was the stand-in for Carol Lindley. And um, I never knew I had the part. I just knew I was working for four weeks on the film. And um, and I was, I was Carol Lindley's stand-in because we were the same size. She was a little aloof. But Gary Lockwood, I'll, I'll never forget how kind and sweet and good and... When you're beginning, you never forget who's nice to you, right, Matthew? It's like Gary Lockwood was so nice and so sweet and so kind. And he made the journey of me being a stand-in worthwhile. And then the day before the last day of shooting, John Broderick said, okay, you're the actress tomorrow. And I went, I am? And he said, yeah. And so um, I got to say my first line on screen. Do you remember what that first line was? Yeah. Yeah. I look at Gary Lockwood and I go, Lero's bad. <laughs> <laughs> you never forget your first. <laughs> nope. I don't think you should. Right. <laughs> anyway. So, yeah, my first line was Leroy's bad, referring to Gary Lockwood. And the woman that I worked with um, in the bar was a barroom scene. I was such a little girl, you know, and. And um, I remember I another thing I remember was um, I uh, I had been part of the crew prior to the me being the actress, and I remember being kind of nervous about my first line. And I asked one of the crew guys, I said, "Could I have some water?" And he's like, "No." And so the the actress that I was working with. I think her name was Judith, wonderful woman, sweet, and knew that this was my first. And she said, get her some water right now. She's the actress. And uh, I'll, I'll never forget that day. I was like, it was amazing. And I remained in the film. And then right after I got my second film. And that would be Nurse Sherry, or a.k.a. The Possession of Nurse Sherry, a.k.a. Beyond the Living, <laughs> a.k.a. Hospital of Terror, a.k.a. Hands of Death. I'm sure I'm missing a few. Uh, oh it's got goodness. a lot of names. I And I did watch it, by the way. I did get a chance to watch it. I found it. Terrible, isn't it? Terrible. <sighs> I don't want to say it, but I'm glad you did. But yeah, that was, I mean, I get terrible. to watch a lot of schlock sometimes doing these uh, yeah, interviews. So I've seen a lot of schlock. This is definitely grade A quality schlock. <laughs> <laughs> grade A. Okay, thank you. I'll take that. <laughs> um, it became a cult film. It did. Why? I don't know. I'm sure you didn't think it was ever going to be that successful doing at the time. I mean, what, what do you think doing that film? I mean, well, first off, if you don't mind, kind of run us through what the heck Nurse Sherry is all about and, and tell us about what was like filming that uh, very, very unique independent horror film. Um, okay, I was a baby. I was 20, 22. And um, uh, I, I was scared and nervous, obviously. And... Uh, but I, w I had already done some acting, obviously, in college, and I studied films. So um, I remember meeting Al Adamson, who he's like a cult figure. And I'm sure you know some of the stories because you do a lot of research. Pretty crazy stories. There's also a documentary or several on well, Al Adamson. If you want to enlighten our listeners to any uh, interesting stories you think are worth hearing, uh, definitely please do. Well, I know a lot of folks might not have heard about him before. He's definitely a character. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Um, not a nice guy. 
not warm. Um, and, you know, when you're scared and you're nervous and this is your first, well, I mean, John Broderick was an angel, but, um, but Al Adamson was like, um, I went in, I don't even know if I read. I'm not sure if I read when I met him, but he said, let me see your boobs. You want to get a part? I was like, I was, I was shaking. I was like, okay. And I was like, like that. And he said, you got the job. <laughs> yeah, I was going to actually ask about that. Cause I was watching the movie and I saw like random stills, like interspliced when you're being, I guess, initially possessed of you topless. And I'm like, that has to be extremely uncomfortable for someone to break into the business. And especially oh. when we consider when this is too. I mean, that's a time period when that, that kind of thing was especially rampant. Right. It was rampant. And um, I was a nervous wreck shooting and lucky for me the the movie came out and it was I mean it was in theaters it was in drive-ins they had full page ads in the LA Times full page they bought the full page sometimes two pages of Nurse Sherry the possession of Nurse or Nurse Sherry and um and then of course my mom and my sister went to go see it in Dallas at a drive-in and lucky for me, they cut out the topless parts. It was out. I don't know how they found them. Obviously, they keep everything. But it was not in the movie theaters, um, which was a load off of my mind. I was always embarrassed. I was so embarrassed that I ever did Nurse Sherry until years later when everybody said, oh, that's a cult film. And everybody wanted to meet me and talk to me about it. And then just recently, when I got to meet Quentin Tarantino on one of his screenings of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I ran up to him and I just knew because he is a cinephile. Uh, and people send me pictures of Nurse Sherry to autograph all the time. And I saved two of the pictures and I brought them with me and I ran on stage to meet Quentin and he looked up at me and I did like that with the pictures. And he said, oh, my fucking God, you are Nurse Sherry. That's my favorite Al Adamson movie I've ever seen. Oh, my God, I can't believe you're Nurse Sherry. And I was like, I couldn't breathe. I just stopped breathing and I get it together, get it together. And I thought, wow, that movie had relevance. Of all that I've done, Nurse Sherry had all this relevance, and all of a sudden I was super proud. I did Nurse Sherry. And of course, Quentin would know that. But I mean, yeah, just like hear what you're telling me now about working with, with uh, that director, too. Uh, having just watched the movie, I can definitely feel that there's a lot of discomfort on your part throughout this entire thing. And it's it's probably, to begin with, the movie is not exactly, you know, this isn't Shakespeare we're talking about here. This is Nurse yeah. Sherry. So you're not working with grade A material for yourself. And then you've also got this guy who's just probably horrible. I mean, what is... What is it like during this process? What's it like being directed by him, especially is what I want to hear about. It was, it wasn't real direction. It was more like, do this, do this. And uh, there was an, you know, a situation when you're really young and vulnerable. And uh, I remember I was doing a scene by the pool that made me incredibly nervous. And I was wearing, I think a necklace or a bracelet that my mom had given me. And it meant a lot to me. And they said, oh, can't, you can't wear that in the shot. So they said, take it off and we'll hold it for you. I never got it back. Little things like that, you just don't forget. And I was so sad, you know. 
I was, I was incredibly sad. And, um, it was, it was, um, you said it all. You said it's, it was uncomfortable and I was a nervous wreck doing it. And so therefore years later, I actually learned how to embrace it by all the attention it was getting. And I was like, and everybody's like, oh, I want to see it. I want to see it. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know if you really want to. Maybe just enjoy the idea of it. You don't really need to see it. But um, yes, I get possessed by the devil. I'm this young, sweet, very sweet young nurse. And a man dies on the table. And um, he wasn't, he was somewhat of an evil man, I think. And so his, his, how would you describe it, Matthew? His, um, his, his energy, essence, his essence his or energy. went into me. And uh, I mean, I was so sweet. And all of a sudden I started doing things that I had no recollection of. Like I started killing people and with meat cleavers and pitchforks <laughs> and um, you name it. Um, well, you saw it. And uh, I got, I actually got possessed by the devil because the devil, um, the devil raped me. Well, you saw the rape scene. So yeah, the another, another horrible, raped. uncomfortable thing to have to do when you're like first breaking in, or just in general. But yeah, that was that was not pleasant to watch. No, no, it wasn't pleasant to do. But it wasn't pleasant for Nurse Sherry either. She's got a boyfriend, and all of a sudden the boyfriend's not there, and the devil's se- having sex with her. So, um, yeah, who knew that that was going to be a big deal? <laughs> I mean, through all that horrible experience, I feel like you must have learned like something really important that you probably held on to to this day. I mean, what did you take away from that entire experience looking back on it now? Did it make you stronger in any way or, or what did it teach you? Well, years later, it taught me to accept it. Um, I think, you know, at the at the time it was everything you said, which is uncomfortable and and uh, embarrassment, a lot, a lot of embarrassment, mostly embarrassment. My sister who was always trying to make fun of me, the 12 years difference, um, would tell people, especially she told my first husband that uh, I had been doing porno, which Nurse Sherry is not exactly porno, Um, not even really close to porno, but she used to tell people that I was doing porno. I mean, if anybody gets off Nurse Sherry, that's that's a whole problem for a therapist to deal with, not for us to deal with. Yeah. And I, you know what, now that I'm thinking about it, um, I think that the meeting with Quentin right before the pandemic changed and validated the entire horrible experience for me in such a way that I was, um, I was so grateful and so happy that someone as brilliant as Quentin Tarantino would be so in awe and recognize me. How could he recognize me? I don't look the same. It's like, and immediately he said, oh my fucking, that's exactly what he said. 
oh my fucking God, you're Nurse Sherry. And to say that was his favorite Al Adamson movie? Well, okay, that doesn't say much. <laughs> but, um, and then all of a sudden I'm thrust into this sci-fi world. Well, before you get into the sci-fi world, there are definitely a few other things I wanted to ask you about here. And uh, one of them is Newhart. You got to do two episodes of Newhart with, of course, Bob Newhart, Peter Scolari, uh, yes. a few other regulars as well on the show. And you were Chantal. Uh, is it Chantal or Chantel? How do they say it? Chantal. Yeah, so... The gracious waitress. I was able to find clips of it, thankfully, online. It's kind of weird. Oddly enough, for whatever reason, like, that season of Newhart is not readily available on, like, I know. platforms. I don't know what's up with that, but that's... I was I've got all these um, 8x10. I've got all these pictures of me from my shows uh, downstairs. My friends have framed them and put them up. And um, I would love to have some pictures of me as Chantal. Um, I was cast as a recurring character. And I only got to shoot two guest star episodes before he canceled, before Bob canceled the show. And, um, I mean, Larry, Daryl, and Daryl were in my episode. I mean, a lot of people don't know that cult, right? Or, you know, Larry, Daryl, and Daryl. I watch a lot of TV, so I, I know who they are. But uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah. you have to be in there with a lot of the regulars, which is pretty exciting. Oh, my God. Bob. Bob Newhart, you remember kindness when you experience it. And that man is so kind and so receptive and so uh, approachable that, um, and such a master of comedy that I remember going up to him. He was just sitting by himself and I walked up and I said, how do you know when it's funny? And then he said, we sat down it was just the two of us. And he said, um, well, um, um, uh, well, he did the Bob Newhart thing. And I went, I got it. I got it. He said, you never really know. And it was just those pauses that he did that made him Bob Newhart that I was like, I'm sitting with a master of comedy and he is a master of comedy and to work with, um, um, David Steinberg was my first director. You know, Dave, of course, you know, everyone. Um, when I was a little girl, I don't know if your audience knows Ed Sullivan, but when I was a little girl, I would sit in front of the TV and watch Ed Sullivan, and there was David Steinberg on Ed. I don't know. I don't know if your audience is going to know anything about this, but David Steinberg would regularly come on Ed Sullivan, and I'll never forget his major line was: um, his father was a rabbi, and his father was trying to veer him away from eating pork, and so he would tell him that pork made him stupid, so don't eat pork. And I never forgot that as a little girl sitting in front of the TV. So the first thing I wanted to ingratiate myself to David Steinberg. And the first thing I said was, um, I haven't eaten pork because I don't want to be stupid. And he went, and from that moment on, he was just, he just embraced me. And my first episode, I had, 
I, I don't know if you saw it, but I had, an, I was a waitress and I had to talk a lot. And uh, he had me work with his other director that was following him on the show. So for a week I was working with him and we had to choreograph when to put the glasses down and when to tell the jokes. Cause I had the jokes to tell and uh, we had to choreograph it. And it, and, and, and then the studio audience comes in after the week that you're rehearsing. And here's a, <laughs> like it felt like 3000 people, right? The studio audience. And I had to get it perfect and talk about nerve wracking. So I'm like, you know, we had been working on telling the joke and putting down the glasses. And when I got it perfectly, well, I had the energy of the audience, which was super fun. When I got it perfectly, um, and he he said he he yelled cut, he ran over to me and just held me and he said, You were perfect, you were so good. And I'm like, oh. you know, it was. I urge anybody to please watch that show in reruns if you can, you know, and then they brought me back in for the, the birth of the baby. Yeah, Newhart is one of those interesting shows, especially because it's a real different bunch of styles of comedies in the same kind of show. Cause you've got Newhart who's so dry and you've got other characters who are not so much, they're a little bit more, I don't want to say in your face, but they're a little bit more jokey, more comedy kind of thing. Uh, and you kind of have this interesting balance that I've seen throughout your work. Like you kind of have this balance where you're doing the dry stuff, but you're also kind of doing a fun character at the same time. Um, so, but yeah, to my point is with a lot of comedy, there seems to be kind of this thing that it's always about getting to the next joke, getting to the next joke, hit that next mark. But uh, you're saying that Newhart found that it was more about just kind of like the silences, the reactions to it and, and taking advantage of those awkwardness. Maybe I mean, how, how would you describe? Awkward. That's the word. Awkwardness is such an essence of comedy. You know, it's not like you had, like you got it down. It's not like, you, it's like, uh, it's like, I don't know. I don't know. What is the, who does like that? Now? That kind of thing adds it into reality too. Cause as opposed to like an Abbott and Costello skit where they're kind of just going back and forth. It's very vaudevillian with someone yeah. like Newhart. It's more like, you know, what the office does in modern times is how it yes. takes those awkwardness and, and brings it into real life. Steve Carell has it, right? Yeah, yeah I'd say so. Yeah, it's the awkwardness that we we all gravitate to because we're somewhat awkward, <laughs> right? As people. So it's like you see somebody like Newhart make a living and make a career and become a historical figure. I mean, that's comedy. That's really it. And you've got a pretty big resume that stretches across all different genre of stuff here. Uh, you know, you did, you have recurring roles also in Falcon Crest and Days of Our Lives. Unfortunately, I don't really want to cover it today just because I don't, I didn't get a chance to watch soap operas. That's kind of a big thing I can't delve into because that's, I'll get stuck in there. But, uh, there is one thing I'm really into and that is sitcoms that either just don't make it past the pilot or just don't do very well, whatever, yeah. for whatever reason. And, uh, you were in the Uncle Buck TV adaptation, yes. which I found interesting. And your character is Doreen Douche. What a great name. Uh, but what I really wanted to ask about was besides doing that show, uh, you got to work with Aubrey Meadows, who is famous uh, for the honeymooners. And I'd love to hear about uh, working with Aubrey. I don't think we've talked to anybody who's actually uh, been with Aubrey before. I've got goosebumps. Oh, I was so thrilled. I was shocked and thrilled. And I had no, I, ha I had no idea that I was going to be able to work with Aubrey Meadows. Um, mm, I've got just, I've got goosebumps now. Um, that was like the highest point of the Uncle, Uncle Buck experience. Kevin, Kevin um, Meany? Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's a story, right? 
the Kevin Meany story. Um, anyway, that was not the high point. The high point was even just being in her, being around Audrey, because who, well, who never watched The Honeymooners? Well, I guess some of your people, but I urge everybody to watch The Honeymooners because, I mean, it's like, that's that's masterful. And now, because of the pandemic, you rerun everything, so you might as well watch the masters but yeah she was lovely 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 so did you get to spend any time with aubrey like in between shoots i mean did you get to actually do a scene with her i didn't get a chance to find this no. i don't think it's out there so no just kevin because i was seducing that was hard seducing kevin that was that was hard and you know it's funny because um years earlier i got to work with john candy on splash and, um, oh, wow, what a, he was amazing as a person, sweet and kind and good, smoked like a chimney. I mean, all the things that you shouldn't do when you're that weight, maybe. But um, he was, he was Uncle Buck, right? He was the movie Uncle Buck. Um, but trying to seduce Kevin meaning was tough. And basically, that's who I worked with was Kevin. You know, and I kept going, why is he not attracted to me? And then years later, I found out, you know. <laughs> yeah, he was under the radar. He was trying to hide the fact that he was gay, unfortunately. But a very sweet man, lovely experience. Um, it was a week or two. No, it's two weeks. Yeah, it was just hanging with her, asking questions with Audrey you know, eating, sitting next to her, just trying to breathe in her essence. That's all you can do, right? What else can you do? It would have been great just working with her, but I didn't have that opportunity. I was with Kevin. But you still have to be around her, which is pretty amazing. I know. I got to soak it in. I got to soak in Audrey Meadows. And since you did bring up Splash, too, I got to ask you about John Candy yeah. a little bit more. Uh, yeah, so uh, what's it like being around John Candy? I, I love hearing John Candy stories. It was a great set. Ron Howard makes everything great. And um, Ron out. Ron loves doing take after take after take after take, which, by the way, I love that as well. And um, so and John Candy's up for he was he's he's deceased, um, but he was up for anything. It was like whatever, you know, so he was chasing me around and we were very playful together and when we weren't actually shooting, he was smoking cigarettes a lot. But he was kind and generous and good and um, just a guy that you want to spend time with. You know, the good ones are you want to spend time with. And it makes you sad when they're gone. Yeah. It makes me sad. I mean, another another person that I um, I loved working with was Adrian Brody. Mm. I uh, played his mother in a short film. I don't know if you saw it called Boredom. Kevin Spacey produced it. <laughs> um, anyway, um, Adrian likes to just keep doing the scene over and over and over again till you don't think about it. It just becomes your natural. Your na your na you don't think about the words, you don't think about anything, and you go into this reality of I played his mother, 
gorgeous looking man, very difficult to play his mother. That was tough. Now, we've got one last thing here to discuss before we jump into our Trek talk, but uh, oddly enough, it kind of relates to our Trek discussion. And uh, you were in an episode of Quantum Leap with Scott Bakula. Uh, you play a character named Shirley Winnick, and this is an episode, by the way, where Scott is a rabbi, <laughs> which is hilarious. I mean, it's got Dean Stockwell showing him how to do, like, Hava Nagila. Uh, what a fun episode. And, yeah, you got to spend pretty- all of your scenes are with Scott. So uh, I'd love to hear working with Scott in this. I'm back once again. Oh, my God. It's my favorite TV. It's my favorite TV episode that I've ever done. And, okay, because it goes deep. It's a deep, deep thing with me. So... I was the first shot up for the week when you do a guest star. And I was the first shot up. I got I got cast the day before. So I have to have a breakdown and I'm making a confession to the rabbi. As though he was my priest, which really people don't usually make confessions. Also, some people do. Anyway, um, and I'm the I'm a Jewish girl. And so we were shooting at a synagogue. I think it was university at uni synagogue. And um, so his first line when he looks, I don't know if anybody remembers quantum leap, but he looks in the mirror at the beginning of the episode and he goes, I'm a rabbi. (laughs) And you see what the real rabbi looks like, who is like this sort of little unattractive guy. And, um, And that's what the real rabbi looks like. So here I am, my first scene up. I'm I'm sitting next to one of the most gorgeous men on TV. Oh, wow. He was just hot, super hot. And, uh, And I'm making a confession to him. And I have to keep reminding myself, he's really not the guy. He's not the guy. And, um... Because I'm, he was so attractive. And um, so I, I should have gotten an Emmy for that because, you know, he was, you have to, he was so hot. I thought he was. What was harder, being Adrian Brody's mom or uh, trying not oh, to jump on top of Scott They were similar, <laughs> very similar because in person, Adrian Brody is, oh, he's so hot. He's so good looking. And at the end, when we did our first, the first uh, rehearsal, I leaned over to kiss him goodnight, you know, in this, in this scene in his bedroom. And I'm his mom. And um, I leaned over and I kissed him on the cheek or, you know, as his mom. And everybody in the cast was subduing laughter. And then Adrian said after they yelled cut, I'm in. I'm cool with this with this mother son relationship. If you want to take it that way, you know, sexually. And I was like, oh shit, <laughs> I can't. <laughs> oh my god, I can't kiss my son uh, because it's coming across. And so we alleviated that. But um, yes, There's so many sound bites in this episode that if anybody took them out of context, this would be uh, hilarious. I know <laughs> it would be total porn. That would be porno. But. Uh, <laughs> with Scott. Um, I did it. He was amazing. And he was trying to be the rabbi and he was doing a great job. He's a great actor. And then after it was over, I asked the director, I said, I was making a confession as to that. I cheated on my husband and I had an affair. 
and uh, said, oh, by the way, who's playing the man that I, that I have the affair with? And then the director says, Russ Tamblin. And I went, oh, oh my God, riff. Oh my, as a, okay, so that was one of the major reasons I wanted to be an actor was West Side Story. I hope your audience knows West Side Story. Riff turned me on. He was one of the first people that got me hot. Russ Tamblin. And I watch it over and over and over again now through lockdown. I'm just watching West Side Story. And he's still doing it for me. And, of course, he's like 86 now. And I'm like, oh. Anyway, so the next day he shows up on the set, Russ Tamblin. And I followed him around like a puppy dog for a week. And he told, he was a huge star in the 60s. And he's telling me all these stories. And I'm, I'm just following, and then I end up dancing with him. We do the horror. I don't know if anybody out there knows the horror. <laughs> but, you know, we, we danced. And um, I was just, I was on, I was, I was on a cloud and that episode of quantum leap means more to me than almost anything because not only did I get to play a Jewish woman, but I got to spend a week with Russ Tamblin, my childhood idol who was still kind of, I danced with Riff. I don't know if your audience is, big on that but they should they should watch west side story well i don't know if you know this jill i mean we brought it up actually in another episode but uh, the director robert wise also directed the very first star trek motion picture oh yes oh yes i knew that there's a star trek connection and everything basically <laughs> wow trek untold will return momentarily Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D printed Trek-inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. Ranging from prop replicas to use in a fan film or cosplay, to accessories or playsets for figures in all different sizes, Triple Fiction Productions has got you covered. Past pieces for toys have included large centerpieces like 10 Forward from the Enterprise D, shuttlecrafts complete with working lights, and the Voyager Bridge, with smaller pieces including Borg alcoves, the Genesis device, and the dreaded arch-enemy of Worf, barrels. All highly detailed products are 3D printed and hand-painted in the USA, with new items added all the time, while simultaneously improving their printing quality based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit triple-fictionproductions.net or visit them on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Want to get 10% off your next purchase? Use code UNTOLD10 at checkout to receive this discount. Not applicable during sales or clearance events. That's code UNTOLD10 to get 10% off action figure dioramas, accessories, and prop replicas. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. Hi, I'm Armin Schimmelman. And I'm Kitty Swink. 17 years ago, I was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. I didn't know it at the time, but I had a 4% chance of surviving five years. As her husband, I was very scared. But he never let me see that. You are a rock. 
Thank you. Thank you. Pancreatic cancer is the third leading cause of cancer-related deaths in the United States, with a five-year survival rate of just 10%. We want it to be much higher. Much higher. It's 6% better when I was diagnosed, but not high enough. More than 60,000 Americans are estimated to be diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 2021, and more than 48,000 will die from the disease. Because symptoms are often vague, it can be hard to detect. Like the rest of the world, the Star Trek universe has been struck repeatedly by pancreatic cancer. Not only those of us that work on the show, but our fans around the world as well. It is why we came together with so many others to work with the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, the leading patient advocates committed to fighting the world's toughest cancer. PanCan is working hard to create better outcomes for this devastating disease through its groundbreaking research and early detection and better treatment options. PanCan drives progress by funding life-saving research, providing personalized patient services, and creating a community of supporters and volunteers who will stop at nothing to create a world in which all pancreatic cancer patients will thrive. You can help support their important mission by donating at pancan.org today. We donated. Won't you do so too? Please, make it so. We now return to Trek Untold. All right, so Jill, let us now beam into our Star Trek discussion here. And your first appearance of two in the Star Trek universe was in the second season episode of The Next Generation, The Royale, which is a very unusual episode, uh, quite an unusual episode. And you play Vanessa. This is It's a fun one, too. I'd love to hear first things first. Uh, how you got cast into this role? Was this like a big open audition? Did they specifically call for you? What do you remember about getting this part? I had been doing two series at the same time. I was doing Falcon Crest and The New Gidget. And they were both coming to an end. I don't know. You knew New Gidget, right? Also. I know Old Gidget. I don't know if I saw uh, New Gidget. Oh, yeah. I was LaRue. I was Gidget's best friend. Oh, okay. For the first season. And um, and I was on Falcon Crest for two years. And so I was doing them at the same I was so happy. I was the happiest actor in Hollywood. I was working every day on two different shows, two different characters. And they were coming to an end. And I felt like my agent was not paying attention. So I created my own management company and with two other actors. And I was getting the breakdowns illegally, which I'm not doing anymore. Um, I was getting the breakdowns illegally. And I saw that Star Trek was that this part that seemed perfect for me came up in the breakdowns. And so my management company, my management company submitted me and my agent did not. (laughs) They submitted someone else. Is that a story? That's anyway, why he's not your agent anymore. I know, I know. And so uh, I submitted myself, and um, I knew Rick Berman huh. because my husband at the time, I don't know how he was friends with Rick. I don't know. He was a writer-producer. And um, anyway, so I knew Rick, and Jeannie Lowry really liked me. She was the casting director. And uh, so they brought me in on my submission. And so they brought me in and um, they didn't really know what they wanted, obviously. Um, They were, you know, they they had me read and they said, try this, try this, try this, try this. And I'm like, sure, you want me to stand on my head? I'll stand on my head, whatever you want, I'll do it. And I did it. And then all of a sudden the word came back that it was between me and another woman which was the woman that my agent had submitted. And then a few days later, they said, it's you. We want you. 
And I was delighted. I was so delighted. I, I went to set. They dressed me in that really cool dress. Of course, everything's on the down low. Well, you know, from Star Trek that you're not supposed to say anything about the script there. I couldn't say anything anyway, because I didn't know what it was. I didn't understand it. So it was kind of like, all I knew was what was in front of me, which was this older guy, Noble Winningham was flirting with me all through it. And I was losing, losing everything at the crap table, blackjack, roulette. I was, I was, was Vegas. It was Vegas, essentially. And that's all I knew. That's all. And then all of a sudden, there's Brent Spiner, Michael Dorn, and, and um, Jonathan. Can I say that I, I worked with Jonathan before? You knew that, right, on Harper Valley? I actually did not know that. I, I wasn't able to find that. Um, so you, was Frakes, I guess, doing a guest appearance on that show? Can I tell you? Can oh, I yeah, say Absolutely. We'll, we'll hear I'm young sorry. Frakes stories. So I was going to be doing this big guest star on Harper Valley PTA with Barbara Eden. And uh, I was playing uh, Hell's Angel. Twin Carps was my name. My first husband said he was he was working on the show. He was producing the show. And so he said, who do you want as your director? And I was my director mentor was the director that first cast me in my first TV role ever, which was um, opposite Brenda Vaccaro. And um, God, okay. Anyway, it'll come to me. Um, So he became my director mentor, Alan Cook. Great director. Great, great. I love Alan Cook. So um, he he cast me in a play called Birthday Party by Pinter, by Harold Pinter. And I was going to have to do a Cockney accent. And I had just met my husband-to-be. He was my boyfriend. And I didn't really want to confine myself to the a play at that moment. Plus, I felt very insecure about doing a Cockney accent with Alan Cook, who was British. And um, I was thrilled and delighted that he cast me in Birthday Party. But I, I turned it down. So when they were performing it, um, my first husband and I um, ended up going to the play to watch the play. And I was captivated, captivated by this actor by the name of Jonathan Frakes, who was playing essentially a mute character. And he was very devilish and very seedy. And his cockney was perfect. He was perfect. And he was also gorgeous. <laughs> Needless to say, I guess you know that I like boys. Okay, so... um, I mean, it's not a crime to be into Jonathan Frakes. I think anybody who's listening to the show probably is, no matter what their gender might be. I'm sure, right? Yeah. I mean, and he's aged beautifully, too. That man doesn't age. He's a vampire. He is. He sucks blood. (laughs) In addition to everything else. Um, (laughs) I-O. So, Alan Cook and my first husband said, who do you want to play your boyfriend? in the episode on, uh, um, with Barbie. Um, and I said, Jonathan Franks. And they said, okay, you got it. He had not, no one knew Jonathan Franks. And all of a sudden he's thrust in to this very large guest star. I mean, this was before anything took off for him, Harper Valley. And he was my boyfriend. And, um, it's a really good episode if you get a chance. It's crazy. Um, 
we're Hell's Angels, and he falls in love with Barbara Eden because she looks like Barbara Eden and I look like a Hell's Angel. And so she gets the idea to transform me into looking more like her. So she does a transformation at the end. I don't really look like her, but at the end, they make it that he he looks at me and he's like, oh, twin carbs. And we ride off in his motorcycle. It's crazy, right? That's that's a crazy story. I love how like, your Star Trek story goes back to Harper Valley PT. I know. And then also you illegally stealing scripts to get the part and then going up against the person who your agent was trying to get. Yeah, that, that's got to be the most longest winding road to get a Star Trek role. And that's like the best story ever for an audition story for Trek. <laughs> it's never been easy for me. I just want you to know it's never been easy. It's always been like, I've got to get this. How do I do it? Um, anyway, so with Jonathan, and then all of a sudden, the first day I arrive on set as Vanessa, he's like, twin carbs, you're here. <laughs> that's worth the story, right? That was absolutely worth it. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that that's what he remembered is twin carbs of all things, too. Wow. And I know I want to ask you about Brent. I want to ask you about uh, Dorn as well. But you mentioned Noble Willingham. And this is our first time actually talking about him in this podcast. He is a true veteran of television. I would love to hear yeah. what it's like being right next to that man for your entire shoot uh, and just chatting with him and, and this this man who's done so much. Good morning, Vietnam, right? Noble was sweet. He had a lot of lines. And um, I think he had some trouble with some of those lines at that time. and. Um, but kind and sweet and good. I was very connected on the set to both Brent Spiner, who I thought was hysterical. I think Brent and I were mostly connected. And then Michael Dorn, but mostly Brent. Cause I thought, I thought Brent was super cute and super funny. And I like super cute and super funny and just ingenious. He would be in the middle of a conversation with me and then boom, he was data. And, and he was so funny and so clever that I had, I had so much fun. I mean, how would you not have fun? I'm like the only girl in the middle of all these guys dressed like a little doll right and um with the little thing in my hair they were like I wonder if we could put this little this little ornament in your hair would that be and I'm like yeah sure let's go for it and um working at Paramount I don't know if these things are ever going to be the same are they things have definitely changed I mean I know I know like on Star Wars sets and Disney they're doing like a lot of virtual sets uh Discovery these days is filming up in Canada a lot so yeah you know, I know they're doing some stuff in America, but a lot of it's in Canada nowadays. So it's a very different kind of world now for Star Trek, especially. Jonathan's going to be directing the beginning of 2022. And he's already directed, I know, uh, a few of, of Discovery episodes. And I guess he's going to do, we, we don't know how many quite yet, but we know he's doing something with Strange New World. So that's pretty exciting. I'm praying, I'm praying, please broadcast this. I'm praying to work with Jonathan on another Star Trek. I'm praying, Matthew. Because... I love that guy. I mean, we're Twitter friends and stuff, but I just love that guy. You know, we have this beautiful history. We, we're both, I don't know if I should say this, but we're both very liberal, you know, progressive thinkers. And um, I think he's kind and good. And 
to have him as a director after this history that we've had. You know, I mean, I don't even know if he realizes that I was pushing for him to play. I think his character was Steel Breath. I was Twin Carbs. I think he was Steel Breath. Crazy names, huh? But we were Hell's Angels. I mean, I have a very fond feelings for him. And I would love to be just, when I look at those episodes, like when I look at um, Next Generation, The Royale, and I looked just recently at Deep Space Nine, which I had completely forgotten about, but they're streaming everything every day. So um, I'm like, I'm so different than the rest of the characters on those episodes. I'm so, you know, out there. <laughs> I mean, that whole episode is very much out there because it's such a weird thing. Like season Which two, one? I'm not going to go into all the nerdy ins and outs of Star Trek, but season two is a real transition period. As they like to put it, it's the season when Next Generation grew a beard. Because that's the season where Frank screwed the beard. That's when the show got better, much better from where it was in season one. But yeah. this episode is a real departure because it's a lot of fun. Uh, you can clearly tell everybody on set is having a ton of fun. I mean, Brent is going nuts in this one, especially with all the card tricks he's doing. And wearing the cowboy hat is hilarious. But I just love to see when you guys are all like rolling craps, rolling dice, whatever it was exactly. Uh, I don't, I don't know dice games, but you guys we are rolling dice, and that was that was so fun to watch. Craps, blackjack. Um, we did everything right. I kept yeah. losing my shirt. <laughs> Uh, much to Noble Willingham's unfortunate, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm sure he wanted you to lose your shirt, but it didn't happen this episode. Uh huh. Uh-huh. But but I felt so. It's funny. It's like no matter what was going on with me and Noble, Brent, I felt was like saving. You know, it was so. Just the way he said, "Losing your shirt." <laughs> he very much commands this episode in a lot of ways. Right? It's so different for Data to be like absorbing this kind of culture, if you will. That's a really hoity-toity way to say it, it. But in that robotic way, losing your shirt. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then we... he looked down. And we mentioned too with Star Trek, especially that uh, you know it's a very fast-paced kind of show. I mean, folks call Jonathan Frakes two takes Frakes for a reason. Uh, Star Trek shows move very quickly, and you were saying earlier how you very much like shows that are take after take after take, and that kind of lets you lose yourself in the role. So did you find it challenging to do a show like Star Trek where it is very much like we got to go, we got to move? The reason I've worked so much t- television is I got the nickname One Take Jake. Oh, there you go. My last name is Jacobson. So I learned early on that you want to work in TV, you got to do one take perfectly. And um, I just shot a film on Tuesday uh, in Indio, California. And... Uh, the director came up to me and said, um, she changed my character as I'm sitting in the makeup chair. And she said, um, I, she said, you're going to be a manager. It's a, it's kind of a reality show for young lesbians. It's a dating game for young lesbians and it's called coming out for love. And uh, she's a really good director. Her name's Nicole Kong. And she comes up to me and she said, okay, I don't want you to play the character we talked about. I want you to play a whole different, it was improv mostly. And um, I want you to, to play the manager of one of the girls that's on the reality show. And I want you to be angry that we didn't choose your girl to be on the, in the lesbian dating game. And I want you to be angry about it. And I want you to be so angry that you get in the faces of all the girls. And then this woman comes up to you and she's trying to console you and trying to get you out of there. And you push her in the pool. 
So I had to push a woman in the pool and then have a breakdown on the set. It had to be done in one take. There was no other chance. So I, I love that. I love both. What can I say? I love working. Obviously. You just love acting. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love to work. Now, you mentioned your DS9 appearance as well. Let's jump into that a little bit. Uh, so that would be season four, season four finale, in fact, of D Space Nine, which is Broken wow. Link. And uh, you played the character Arroyo, who's a Bajoran shop owner who is very much hitting on Odo, which it sounds like is the perfect role for Jill Jacobson. Uh, so you get to spend time with Renee. You get to spend time with Andrew Robinson. Uh, so for this role, was this again like they remembered you, they brought you back, or did you have to audition for this one? Oh, I had to audition. Nobody brings you back. Well, especially for a different character. I mean, a totally different character from Vanessa, although Vanessa was cute and cute and sexy, right? But um, Shalon, oh, I had plans. They It was supposed to be a recurring character. And I was the owner of the Celestial Cafe. And I love to cook. And I love to cook healthy food. And I was beginning my journey as a non-dairy cook. And um, I thought, why don't we tie this in together? <clears throat> if I'm going to be a recurring character on a Paramount show like Star Trek, let me create a cookbook and maybe Paramount will sponsor my cookbook. Maybe I can open a restaurant called the Celestial Cat. I had high hopes because I was being brought in as a possible recurring character. I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. So um, Andrew Robinson is the sweetest man. Ever. Well, you can see that. It's pretty obvious. Um, Odo, um, Renee, you know, a little bit more, well, he was Odo, so he's a little more standoffish, um, which enabled me to be a little flirtier with Odo. I just was being Jill. I was just being myself. You know, I was, I, Andrew had a boutique. I was trying on beautiful clothes. I was sashaying around in clothes, which is kind of something I would do anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and they do have beautiful clothes on Star Trek. Oh, they're gorgeous. Yeah, not to interrupt you, but like I was going to say, basically your two roles in Star Trek, you're not wearing a Starfleet uniform. You're not wearing any heavy alien prosthetics. You get to wear two amazing dresses like that. That's kind of amazing. Oh, I got to wear, I got to wear, I had two outfits. In that's right, yeah, you had three, yeah, you, get, you get three different really yeah. gorgeous dresses to wear. Gorgeous. And everybody else is running around in Klingon armor and 20 pounds of prosthetics. Well, I, I was a Bajoran. I was going to so ask you about that, too, because you, you were a Bajoran, so you got to do a little bit of the prosthetic makeup. Had, had you actually yeah. ever done any prosthetics previously? No. So that was your first time? How, how was I did it? A, I did a movie where I had a squib. Okay. You know, but that wasn't on my face. I, I got shot, and so I, I had to die with a squib. But um, no, this was – and the, everything's top secret. You're not allowed to talk about anything. And, but when you work with the Westmores, what an honor. Right. What an honor. You get in there an hour early and it's top secret. You can't tell anyone you're a Bajoran and they're putting on the, the, the nose. But yeah, that was pretty awesome to be able to wear those clothes. Cause I, and to be as out there. I mean, I watched the episode not long ago um, because a friend of mine said, you're on TV now. And I'm like, what? And I watched it and I thought, I am so different from the rest of the characters. Just sashaying around. Anyway, so when it aired, what, 20 years, whatever it was, 30 years ago, um, 
uh, a friend of mine said there was a board, a Star Trek board that lit up and the minute my episode aired on Deep Space Nine and it lit up and everybody was screaming and yelling and they were calling me a hussy and a slut because I was trying to steal Odo away from Nana Visitor. Even though, meanwhile, I think at this point she was with Shakar and they were kind of trying to find a new relationship for Odo for Renee's character. Uh, but it's kind of funny because you really did bring a different kind of sexual energy on the show as opposed to what we've seen with, let's say, Terry Farrell as Dax or Nana Visitor as Kira. It was very different, very much outright, which uh, you see sometimes in Star Trek with the guest stars. But in the way you did, it was very like it did feel very natural. It felt like it was just like you said, it was just Jill coming on the set, hanging out. Yeah, it was complete. I wasn't I wasn't. I, I had no intention of creating havoc. I was just doing what the script said, which was I shook his hand. Yep. And then he starts melting. And um, maybe it was the dress. I don't, I don't, I, I mean, I don't know. But all of a sudden, I wasn't asked back again because the boards were calling me a slut and a hussy. And I'm like, well, I didn't mean to be a, a slut and a hussy. I want to come back to this show badly. So, um, you know, but when I watched it, what, about four weeks ago or whatever it was, um, I'm like, I, I couldn't believe how different I was than everybody. It must have been kind of fun, though, right, to watch somebody different? Yeah, absolutely. I don't know. How, what was your point of view? <laughs> it was definitely refreshing because your character was very, very different than what I've normally seen. I mean, even, you know, in the Royale, Vanessa definitely fit into the world. Arroyo was just so much like... I don't want to use the word outsider, but, you know, she's in Deep Space Nine. We're used to this world being so grim and so dark all the time. Then here's yes. this like little ray of sunshine popping in with her blonde hair uh, and, her, and her twirling dresses. And she's talking to Odo, the grumpiest man on the space station. <laughs> right. And and then they wouldn't let me back. And I'm like, no, I want to come back. And then I when I saw it, I was like, maybe that's why they didn't bring me back. Was I was too much sunshine. <laughs> well, hopefully, you know, there's new Star Trek stuff coming out all the time now, so hopefully oh, we can get you for a, a trifecta. And I'd like to ask also, you worked with two directors who are regulars in Star Trek. Cliff Bull did your episode of TNG, and Les Landau was your DS9 director. They had yes. both done a lot of Trek, in addition to many other things before. Uh, had you worked with either of those directors previously? Oh, no. Did you know about them at all? No, I didn't. I had How did no you like idea. Them? Oh, I mean, I had a great time. I had a great time. I mean, it was... You don't, like I said, the humor and the energy of Brent Spiner made everything so comfortable for me because they didn't really quite know what um, Royale was. I think everybody was like, what is this? I watched the Oda one. I watched um, Deep Space Nine. And yeah, that is dark. Yeah, it's a very dark episode, very he serious might episode. Be coming back. That's one of those episodes that really changes the tone of the show for really the first half of that season five. And, uh, you know, with a character like Vanessa, I felt like she fit in a little bit better because especially TNG, the next generation at that point, they were still kind of trying to find their own language. And the Royale is one of those episodes that feels a little bit like a Gene Roddenberry episode. But yes. it also feels a little bit modern. They're kind of trying to find their way. This is one of those weird in-between episodes. So Vanessa definitely fit in there very well. Arroyo on Deep Space Nine was vastly different. Very peculiar to have such a character who's like so happy in this world where everything is horrible, basically. <laughs> I mean, you got Cardassians over here doing one thing. You got Klingons doing bad stuff over there and another. I mean, it's it's a pretty serious world. And you're trying to get a date with Odo. 
just hearing you say that makes me laugh. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm just thinking about how fun it is being the owner of the Celestial Cafe and buying this new gorgeous dress. And she's doing well. Yeah. What was wrong with that? I'm making my own money. I'm a, I'm a, you know, a, a woman with a profitable career. I'm doing the thing I love and I'm dressed and I'm dressed to the, to the tens and, you know, and I'm flirting with the guy that looks like he's intelligent and smart and I'm a sapiosexual. So, you know, I would naturally want Odo. Never heard that before, have you? Me That's neither. an amazing SAT word. I got to write that one down. Right on, man. Right? <laughs> I'm a sapio, so I go for Odo. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you should definitely broadcast that one. I'm going to steal that word. Yeah, it's right on because obviously sapios would love Odo. And uh, isn't that funny that I would be going for Odo and I would be going for data <laughs> in, my, in, in who I am? I'm like, because they're both so smart. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. I guess that's what I'm attracted to. Although I was attracted to Russ Tamlin because oh. he he was the leader of the Jets. <laughs> you know, he was hot, so hot. Now, did you ever audition for any other Star Trek roles besides these two? We know these are the only ones no. you did, but did you? This this is it. Okay. I want to. I want to. Oh, my. Oh, my goodness. Everything now. Oh, Matthew, it's all done. Echo cast. Especially with COVID, I like yeah, I mean, because you're still you're still booking gigs right now, so I mean, you're having yeah. to do things now. I guess we're going to kind of jump ahead now into our modern talk, if you will. But you know, these days you're you're still auditioning, you're still working, uh, and you now have to audition via Zoom or via sending in video. I like love that. Zoom. I love yeah, this. I love this because we get to talk. I mean, when you're doing auditions though nowadays, I mean, are you able to kind of get yourself in the mindset, like you know, basically the difference is if you're sending a tape or doing something by Zoom, you don't really have the same way to get a reaction and really feed off that. I mean, are you, are you finding well, that, I think that for you? you right now with Zoom? Yes. But EchoCast is like, look, I have this, I, you have to have this machinery, you know, and then um, it makes me nervous because every time I get a great audition there, I have to find someone to read with me. And, you know, in the, in the olden days you get, you know, you, you get dressed, you go, to an office you've got a casting director reading with you and um and they're and they're shooting you they're they're filming you and they're shooting you and and then you come home and you're done and you hear yes or no which i love doing that because i would walk into a room and tell a joke and i'd get booked and i loved it because i love telling jokes and i love meeting people but now it's kind of like they say you've got an echo. Then sometimes they give you a million echo casts. Like you'll you get two or three a day, and I'm like, I can't do it. I just because I've got to find someone to read with me and to shoot me. I mean, I can shoot myself, but I need someone to. I can't edit. I I wasn't trained as a cinematographer. I wasn't trained as a. You know, you got to send it send it in online. It's like, just let me be an actor, please. Just let me be an actor and go to the set and do what I do. And I I will do a good job, but don't make me do an echo cast. Oh, you know, it's just so, it's so much extra work. I, I would love just to someone just offer me something. Um, like, about um, two months ago, I did a bunch of autographs for um, 
the Royale. And um, I love doing that. I love doing, you know, I, I just, and I love doing stand-up. Of course, that's kind of limited too now, but I love doing stand-up comedy. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that, in fact, because, uh, you know, you've, as we talked about today, you've done a lot of different genres of things. And uh, then I saw you suddenly doing stand-up on, on YouTube. I found some of the videos of that. And I'm just like, that's that's got to be a big jump to make, too, because I've heard stand-up comedy is like one of the hardest things for someone to do and hardest thing to transition into. So why did you want to give it a shot? And I mean, how did you feel about it? Because it's hard. It's a, you know, it's like, why not just why not do everything? So you just wanted the challenge? You know? Yeah, yeah. But I like talking to people. So when I'm on when I'm on stage uh, doing stand up, I I get in their faces, and um, I found that my well, obviously you you said it. Uh, one of my characters is as a cougar, which was the natural evolution of Vanessa and Shalon, is being the older, the old, the cougar. So I just decided, let me, let me do that. Let me do that. But it's a character. I don't really screw my paper boy. <laughs> he wouldn't That's say if he did, right? He's going to keep it on the down low. <laughs> right. Exactly. He's going to keep getting that paycheck. Although it's funny because um, when I've done, when I've done some of the standup, uh, the young men in the audience, believe me, they think I am a cougar. I mean, is that so a bad thing? Follow me. They follow me out. <laughs> and I'll go, no, it's it's a character I'm playing. I'm not really a cougar. And they'll go, no, no, you are. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a zebra. I call my, the young men, I call them zebras. And they go, I know I'm a zebra. I'm a zebra. And I'm like, but I'm not really a cougar. That's a character I play. And no, no, I'm a zebra. I'm like, I just, I make up things, you know. That's what's so much fun about I. I'm a character. I'm an actress. I'm a character actress. And that's why I want to work until I'm dead. Cause I am a character actress and I love being a character. Well, I mean, Some if you're getting that kind of reaction, me. you're definitely doing something right. Yeah, I guess, I guess I'm doing something right. Cause I want to keep working. So Jill, if you want my audience to look at a particular piece of work that you've done that you are the most proud of, what would you say that piece of work would be? You can't look at the theater. Um, there's, theater that I'm, you know, I did um, several Tennessee Williams plays, but you can't see them now, unfortunately. Um, and I did Clifford Odette's Rocket to the Moon, and I, you know, um, but you can't see those, unfortunately. Summer Smoke was one of the most amazing pieces I've ever done. I played Miss Alma in Summer Smoke. Um, but I think, aside from Star Treks, because I'm so proud, so proud that I was able to do not one but two Star Treks that people watch. Um, so proud of that. And I would, oh, I would be so happy to do another one. But the Falcon Crest stuff was pretty also out there compared to the other characters that were on Falcon Crest, I, um, I was very devious double agent opposite David Selby. And some of the material was, I mean, it was crazy. I did some crazy stuff and I got to work with an amazing actor, David Selby on Falcon Crest. 
people ask me this. They ask me this. And um, I guess I block out any bad experience. If there are any bad experiences, I block out. But for the most part, I'm so I'm so grateful that I've had such I mean, if it was all over today, if the world ended, I'm so grateful that I've been able to work a lot, a lot. And so grateful that I had these amazing people to work with and these teachers that were pushing me to go beyond. My acting teachers, Peggy Fury, one of the best acting coaches ever, um, Sean Penn was in my class, Jeff Goldblum, Manette O'Toole, Bruno Kirby. She taught Michelle Pfeiffer, um, Lily Tomlin. Um, I mean, I studied with Milton Casales, who was encouraging me to produce. So I learned how to produce, which I produced. And I never had the courage to write until recently when I started writing stand-up. And because it was short and I could tell a quick story and never realized that I was who I am isn't necessarily just an actor, but a storyteller. I, I love to, and I think I've learned that more through the pandemic that who I am is a storyteller. I love to tell stories as you've witnessed here today. <laughs> going back to Harper Valley. I love telling stories and I love remembering stories. I think it's so important to remember these things and to remember people that have touched you and encouraged you and um, allowed me to have this career that I, I never, I don't want to stop. I don't want to stop. So it's all about being healthy, right? Staying healthy. And acknowledging the people that are your teachers, your mentors along the way. And I think that's what brings you luck is listen, listen. Don't, don't think you have the answers, but listen to your mentors like my Bob Newhart and um, my, my director mentor, Alan Cook, and all my mentors along the way. Listen to them. If somebody can tell you, teach you something, listen. I mean, that sounds like you kind of just answered my next question I was going to throw at you, but uh, what's something that you wish that you knew back when you were first starting out that you know today, whether it's about acting or about life? And I feel like you might have just answered it right there, but let's see if anything else uh, comes across your mind. I think I kind of did it, but in some ways, I wish I had been more courageous, more courageous, um, because I'm from the South. I'm from Texas. And... I was raised with a mom that was kind of like Blanche Dubois that always believed in the kindness of strangers and men doing things for you. You got You know, she kept saying, you got to get married, got to get married. Um, I wish in many ways that I knew that I was powerful, that I had more power than I gave myself credit for. I think I could have gone even further at that time um, than believing that, my mom was like, got to get married, got to get married. That wasn't on my mind. What was on my mind was, where's my next job? I just want to act. And um, it wasn't about, obviously, it wasn't about having babies. It was as 
even though I'm incredibly um, maternal, I'm maternal with my dogs, but it was about where's my next job? What can I dive into? Yes, I wish I had been more courageous and knew my own power. It's, you know, it's not a shame that when you get older, you recognize your power because you can still use it if you stay healthy. And I would like to stay healthy and work. Well, I think going back to how we started this conversation with Nurse Sherry, I can say in terms of courage, I mean, it seems like you took a very horrible traumatic experience and then you used it to kind of give yourself courage throughout your career. And you kind of, from what you've told me, you know, here, it seems like you've really molded your own destiny. I mean, becoming your own agent, essentially. You did things to kind of take your power back. And that's pretty admirable, I would say. I think that's, you know, for someone who's saying you wish you were more courageous, you definitely became more throughout your career. So I, I think you definitely have achieved that. That's so sweet. That is so sweet of you to say. I mean, it just, it chokes me up because um, I felt like I was always fighting incredible odds. I was always so envious of the, the actors around me that had, agents that were getting them out every minute. I was very envious of that. And I wished that I wish that I had had that. So I felt the need to whenever I got an audition to book it, I have to book it. I have to do whatever they say to book it. And uh, it was it was never handed. I wasn't Paul Newman's daughter. You know, I didn't come in with any nepotism. I just came in as, you know, little Jewish girl from Texas <laughs> that kind of had to um, be smart. I had to be smart. And if somebody gave me a direction that I had to just do it, I had to, I had to do that direction. And, um, but I also was surrounded by amazing directors and people that gave me things that I was like, wow, look who I'm with. Yeah. I didn't take that. I didn't just assume or assume that I was excited. I mean, everyone should be excited. They should never come to a set and go, yeah, 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 yeah. I know, I know, I know. I can't stand people that say that. Yeah, I know, I know. You're not, no, I, I know, I know. I'm like, oh God, you don't know. You don't know. Take it, take it in. All right, so Jill, on a more lighthearted note for our big ending question here, I'm going to throw it to you. The same question I give all of our guests as we wrap up these interviews uh, what is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? Oh my goodness, so much. There's so much. Um, it's an acceptance. Um, it's an acceptance into a world that it's so it's so valued. It's it's got value. Um, it's it's got history. It's got value. Um, the fan base is amazing. They. It's love, it's acceptance, it's family. Um, I'm, from my point of view, it's gratitude. I have so much gratitude. Thank you so much for letting me be part of it. Well, hopefully it's not the end either. I mean, like we said, you want to be part of some, one of the new treks, so we got to find a way to make it happen. I want to see Jill Jacobson pop up on Discovery or Strange New Worlds, and then we can get you back on the show and we can talk about being back on Trek. Oh, Matthew, from your lips to Jonathan Frake's ears. <laughs> Well, Jill, again, thank you so much for chatting with us today. Really appreciate it. Uh, I recommend folks check out those episodes you haven't seen in a while because they're a lot of fun. Uh, so, Jill, thank you so much again. It was real wonderful chatting with you. Great to meet you. And you can see the Harper Valley. Definitely, now I definitely want to see that. I want to see uh, Twin Carbs and what was it? Sweet Mouth or what was his name? Clutch Breath. Even better. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that crazy? That is an amazing name. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I can't really top that. So that's our blackout joke. So uh, Jill, thank you again so much. Really appreciate it. It's been wonderful. Matthew, you're awesome.
Thank you. And that was our chat with Jill Jacobson, a real deep dive into her career with a lot of great lessons along the way. And to the Star Trek gods out there, let's just put our fingers together and make a big, mighty LLAP and see if we can get Jill onto another episode of a new Star Trek show. And one last time before I sign off, I want to remind you guys, this is it. This is the final week to enter that Hero Collector sponsored contest to win a hardcover copy of Star Trek, the original series, a celebration book. So all you got to do to enter this contest is leave a five star rating and a positive review on iTunes. Take a screenshot of it and hit me up on social media at Trek Untold to let me know that you did it. Then you'll get thrown into the pool with all the other folks who have done this and one winner will be randomly selected to get a copy of this book. That's all there is to it. And hey, if you already own a copy of the book, please feel free to leave a rating and review anyway, because hey, it always helps us out. That's it for this week's episode of Trek Untold. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Trek Untold, which is just one word in all those platforms. If you're listening to this on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or any of those other locations, please leave a positive review and a five-star rating if you can to help show other listeners how much you like this podcast and spread the word. If you're watching this on YouTube, please like the video, leave a comment, and subscribe to our channel at youtube.com slash nerdnewstoday. If you're enjoying Trek Untold and in a position to financially support the show, I hope you consider being one of our Patreon supporters by visiting patreon.com slash trekuntold where you can help us out for as low as $2 a month and get some pretty sweet perks. Shout out once again to Triple Fiction Productions, who you can check out at triple-fictionproductions.net. If you're a collector of Star Trek toys in any size or scale or enjoy prop replicas, you're going to love the quality of their 3D printed products, and I'm sure you will be a repeat customer. Shout out to Scott Ray for connecting me with this week's guest. If you'd like to book them for a convention or an appearance, email scott at scottray67 at aol.com. If you have any comments, feedback, or suggestions for future guests, send an email to me at trekuntold at gmail.com. I hope you'll beam up again with us next week for another episode of Trek Untold. So until then, I'm Matthew. Thanks for listening. And remember, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the RageWorks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.